Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by the Chartered College of Teaching and listeners like you. To support our work and to gain access to exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Samaraki, and I'm here with Dr. Althea Kaminsky, who is an assistant professor at St. Bonaventure University, and there's she's got all kinds of other things going on, so I'm going to let her explain um, a little bit. Thanks, Megan. Uh, so, like Megan said, I'm an assistant professor at St. Bonaventure University. Uh, in addition to that, I am also the co-director of CALM, the Center for Attention, Learning, and Memory. I also recently joined the Learning Scientists. We also wrote a book last year. Yeah, yes, yeah, so you're our newest member of the Learning Scientists. I should have mentioned that before. So there's there's five of us now. So we have um, myself and Yana, Cindy, Nebel, Carolina, Cooper Tetzel, and now Althea Kaminsky. So we are here at the Psychonomic Society, the annual conference for the Psychonomic Society here in um, New Orleans in Louisiana. And you are presenting your research tomorrow. So tell us a little bit about, about that research and your research program in general. Yeah, so tomorrow I'm presenting along with my co-director, Dr. Adam Brown, and we're presenting our research on the effects of cell phone on attention. So um, over the past year, we've done a few research studies. We're presenting the work from the first one, which we actually did in conjunction with one of our students uh, who did it as part of her honors thesis, and so I'm very proud. Good job, Anna. Um, The research focused on how notifications from cell phones distract us in everyday tasks. So the task that we used to model that was the Stroop task. So the Stroop task, which I know you're familiar with, but other people may not be familiar with what the Stroop task is, um, in that task, you are presented with a word on, say, a screen, which is why we did it, and the word was a color word like red in blue ink. So normally the reading of the word red would be pretty automatic. When it's in an ink color that is incongruent with what the word says, it's a little bit harder for us. So their job is to say, even though the word is red, the ink color is blue. And so they're supposed to respond and say, that's blue, because they're naming the ink color, right? Correct. Okay. Right. And so you can have, on some trials, it's congruent, so you would have blue and blue ink. Other trials, it's incongruent. You have the word red and blue ink, and you're supposed to say blue, right? And you can see it's tricky explaining it. It's even trickier doing it. Um, So we had people doing that task. And while they were doing that task, they had a cell phone out in some conditions. Um... In some settings, the the cell phone was on silent and it wasn't receiving any notifications, so it was just out on the table. Um, Sometimes it was the person doing the task, the subject, um, it was their cell phone, and other times it was the experimenter, it was their cell phone. Sometimes they get notifications, sometimes they wouldn't. And then we had a control where there was no cell phone present. So in this experiment, the students came in and you were like, please put your cell phone on the table and do this experiment. Yeah, our research assistants had a lot of fun with that. Um, They had to text them and have like, they they had to send texts at like regular intervals. um, And they had a whole script to follow to explain why sometimes it was okay to have the cell phone out. And sometimes it was not okay to have the cell phone out. Um, But it was within subjects. So we had people... Uh, do all five conditions. So we had no cell phone, your cell phone receiving notifications, your own cell phone not receiving notifications, the experimental cell phone receiving notifications, or the the experimenter's cell phone not receiving notifications. So all these different ways, right? Basically, we just tried to vary, like, 
what's the effect of having a cell phone out? And does it matter if it's your cell phone or somebody else's? Thanks. Presumably, if someone else's phone is getting notified, that might distract you a little bit. Maybe you care, maybe you don't care. Right. And you might expect that maybe you're more like attuned to your own phone versus somebody else's, right? Um, and so we measured how well they did on this task, on the Stroop task, which, like we explained, it's kind of complicated. Um, and it's even harder if you're having to block out, right, and try to selectively not attend to the cell phone going off. Um, our results were a little complicated because it's kind of all over the place. Uh, not all over the place, there's just five different conditions, right? And we had to measure congruent trials and incongruent trials. In general, what we found was that, yeah, like we would expect, cell phones were distracting, they harmed attention. Um, and it didn't really matter so much if it was your cell phone or somebody else's, and receiving notifications was more distracting than not receiving notifications. And this is consistent with a lot of previous research that has shown that we're, we're kind of trained to respond to cell phones, right? Um, if you think about it, right, there are companies that have invested millions of dollars into making sure that you respond to this thing. So of course, they're very distracting when we have them out. Even if it's somebody else's cell phone that's out, it's also distracting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know there is some work about driving and texting, and it's not just about reading your text messages or typing new text messages in while you're driving, just knowing that you're getting notified and and knowing that something's happening and trying to think about what that could be or what it what it might be can be really distracting. Right, even if you don't respond to it. So in this task, they were told not to respond. Like our, our students didn't respond to the cell phone when it was going off. It still slowed them down, the trials where they received that versus the trials where they didn't. Did they have to read the messages? No, they weren't required to respond at all. It was just and part of the reason why we had them do it on their own phone was because we thought it might make a difference if you were getting your own text message noise versus some whatever preset one we would come up with. Um, and so even though they, they very explicitly were told, do not respond to this thing, it still distracted them and still slowed them down. So the implication, it sounds like, is, you know, you can have your phone out on the desk and you can say, well, I'm not paying attention to it. I'm not, I'm not attending to it. I'm not answering. But it's still distracting and affecting your ability to perform in the classroom. Definitely. Even more than that, it's not just your cell phone. It's other people's phones, which is interesting, right? Because you in other research shown in surveys that, if you survey people, they'll say, oh, well, obviously other people's phones are distracting, but not me, right? Like, I'm very good at blocking that out, right? I have my phone all the time, and I don't feel like it distracts me. And the research suggests otherwise, that it actually does distract you. Yeah, it makes it less likely that you're able to perform this task, which is already difficult. Right. Right. And- right. It, it's difficult, but it's complicated to explain, but at its essence, it's actually pretty simple, right? We're saying, like, what is the color on the screen? Maybe it's a blue, is it red, is it green, right? We've, we've made it slightly complicated, but that's a relatively simple task compared to maybe understanding a history lesson, right? Where you've got to remember not just what happened two minutes ago, but maybe what did we talked about last time, right? And connect things together, right? That's kind of a higher order, much more complex task than what is this thing right in front of you right now? Yeah, Stroop task. I mean, each trial is going to be tricky, but... The previous trial doesn't mean anything for the next trial. So even if you tune out for a little bit, it's not going to affect you as much as if you're trying to listen to a lesson in the classroom, you space out for even a few minutes, and now you don't know what's going on, even though you're fully attending. That makes it even more difficult. Right. And so the research that we have going on in our lab this semester is looking at that question, where we're having students come in and they're watching um, a very short video on a, a TED-Ed lesson, right? So we wanted to pick something that... Um, was educational, but that maybe people didn't have that much background information about, which is kind of tricky at the college level, right, as you know, to kind of come up with new material. So we think we found something that 
most people didn't know that much about. Um, and it's, I think, I want to say like a five minute long video and they had the same five different conditions. Your phone's getting notifications, someone else's phone's getting notifications, right? All those different variations. Um, and we're going through the data of this semester to see whether or not, if you got a notification at a certain point in time, did that affect your ability to recall that on a quiz immediately right after or a quiz one week later? So we're kind of looking, bridging uh, between not just attention, but also memory. And we're trying to do it in a slightly more realistic setting. Yeah, and I, I know you have a handful of, of different research projects going on in your lab. You do a lot of work with different students and cater to their interests a little bit. Mm-hmm. What, what else do you have going on? I know you've done some work on exercise and learning. Yeah, a few years ago we did some research on exercise and learning. There we were looking at whether or not um, exercise would kind of boost your attention and therefore your memory um, and whether or not that would kind of hold true within a certain time frame, right? So that was um, a collaboration with uh, Dr. Nick Mitchell, uh, formerly of Gettysburg University, uh, and he was, he was a biologist, so he understood way more about like how exercise affects you physiologically, right, and how that might make you more alert. And it's not just about maybe 10 minutes after you walk out of the gym, but it really does have lasting effects for upwards of a few hours. Um, and it's actually interesting because we both started doing this research based off of the anecdotal um, evidence of having a lot of student athletes in our class. And usually student athletes get kind of a bad rep for being like dumb jocks or whatever, but they always did really well in our early morning classes. And we thought, well, maybe it's because they're all coming right off of conditioning practice really early in the morning, right? So at my 8 a.m. class, the kid who just did like a, a two-hour like free weight you know, conditioning practice is way more alert than the kid who just rolled out of bed. Um, we also thought, well, how much of this has to do with just kind of what we just said, the heightened arousal, you're just more up anyways. So we had two conditions. Uh, we had people uh, go through and go <laughs> do a whole exercise protocol on a treadmill. I learned a lot about VO2 max and how to measure people's heart rates and make sure that they're exercising um, at an elevated rate that would be considered like actual cardiovascular cardiovascular benefit. Because a lot of the research we had seen from like the cognitive side said, oh, they walk around for 20 minutes. And it had no sort of regard for the fact that people have different physical fitness levels. Um, and tw- a 20 minute walk around a campus might be strenuous exercise for some people. It may be hardly anything for other people, right? So you have to really tailor it to the individual. And I mean, when I walk, I have an inability to slow down. So I'm like speed, speed, speed walking everywhere. Whereas some people are very able to sort of casually stroll. So I'm sure there's a lot of variability there. Right, so we monitored that on a treadmill. We had um, heart rate monitors um, and sort of took like a baseline measure. And then we had to have them at a certain sustained elevated heart rate for 20 minutes. For most people, it ended up being about 20 or 30 minutes, and it was pretty easy to go through that protocol. It was really difficult when we had student athlete comes in. Um, so our division one swimmers, we could not get those kids to have an elevator heart rate. We had them at like full out like runs on the treadmill, and it took like an hour and a half to go through the protocol to get them to like to, to have the same level of physical exertion as the more sedentary students. Um, which was just like a nuance that I wouldn't have appreciated if I hadn't gone to this area of research our control condition to like control for the arousal because maybe it's not just the exercise maybe it's we know after you exercise it's um it improves your mood so we had students watch an episode of how i met your mother Hmm. um which my research assistants again love doing this because i told one of them i said your job this weekend 
is to go through and watch How I Met Your Mother and find me the funniest episode. <laughs> the one that you think would be most like widely appealing to other students, right? And and which one was it? Um, oh God, I forget. Slapsgiving? I it was like- Slapsgiving. Yes, you're right. You're right. Um, it was Slapsgiving. I asked a question, but I knew the answer. She knew the answer. I've, I've told the story before. Um, it was Slapsgiving, and it was it was really fun watching people do the experiment because they would, like, if they hadn't seen it before, even if they had, they would still, like, chuckle at, like, certain key points. Um, but that definitely, and, and we surveyed them afterwards, like, we surveyed about mood, right? Like, how are you feeling before you watch this thing versus after, before you got on the treadmill versus after. And in both cases, people's mood was elevated. Everyone said afterwards they felt a lot better. Um... And then we had them learn some Swahili English word pairs. Actually, no, Lithuanian English word pairs in this study. That's right. We use different norms. Um, so we had them learn some material, and then we test them on it, right? So again, we're testing the hypothesis that um, people who work out will be sort of in a better mindset to learn, right? They're, they're, they're more... Um, physically like aroused they're just they're awake right they're here there it's easier for them to pay attention presumably what we found was actually a little concerning for me as a professor there were no differences no significant differences between students um, when they had watched how i met your mother versus um exercising yeah it was there were no differences there that it really was this like heightened arousal and like mood state now, one thing that we couldn't really address, and there is a big body of literature to back this up, is that there are differences between what we might term chronic exercisers versus acute exercisers. So this was a very short-term intervention, right? Mm-hmm. We said, like, one time, are you better at paying attention or learning after you get on a treadmill this one time, this one day? There's a lot of literature to back up the fact that people who exercise regularly maintain a healthier lifestyle tend to perform better cognitively. Mm-hmm. So our one-time intervention didn't show that much of an effect. And and this is why we thought it was appropriate to have the mood-based control. Um, they actually showed the same levels of mood elevation um, from pre and post from the exercise to the, um, the How I Met Your Mother episode. So it was an interesting line of research, right? But that's what science is, right? You have a hypothesis, you test it, and it doesn't always come out to be this like really big difference. So that was one piece that we were working on. Another uh, piece of research that we've been working on a lot is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, And it's correlate with like selective attention. So we we have a lot of students who are interested in mindfulness and meditation, and they found it beneficial to them in their own practice. And a lot of what they described to me in our research meetings for their honors theses and things like that, it sounded a lot like the research on selective attention. That the, a lot, when a lot of people think of meditating, they have this, this notion that it's like you clear your mind and you don't think of anything. And that's not really what it is, or at least the mindfulness exercises that I'm familiar with and what my students were telling that they were familiar with. Um, it was more about, hey, you had a distracting thought, that's okay, acknowledge that, and now move on. In other words, it was teaching you to selectively attend, to say it's okay if you get distracted, note it, put it aside, and move on, right? Building that skill of putting it aside so that you can focus on what's in front of you. So we did um, a small experiment on that last year when I had an honor student who's interested in it, and I have a few students who are pre-health majors and are very interested in this mindfulness stuff, and that's what the research we're going to be focusing on next semester is going to be about. 
Yeah, that's great. So you're doing a lot of research on learning, memory, attention, and how it applies to education, students in the classroom, and so on. So you've recently co-founded a center, right? The um, the CALM Center, the Center for Attention, Learning, and Memory. And my understanding is that center is about basically taking all of this research and talking about how to put it into practice. Yes. So tell me, tell us a little bit more about about the center. So one of the things that we try to do in the center is offer at least one, if not two, workshops a semester. Um, The workshops in the past have been directed towards primarily faculty. This semester, um, because we've been in operation for a year and our faculty workshops have gone fairly well, and we had a faculty workshop focus on specific things like we had a retrieval practice workshop, um, a multitasking workshop where we tried to tell people that multitasking is not a thing, we need to focus on selective attention and things like that. Um, This semester we've offered uh, at least two workshops for a subset of students on almost all the things that we've talked about, uh, on improving their study skills, uh, applying a lot of the stuff that we talked about at Learning Scientists and applying that to their studying. We also offered a workshop for our staff members who work in like the Student Success Center, um, so the people in charge of like our first year experience program, um, our tutors for student athletes, the directors of athletic programs and things like that. Um, We have a lot of various um, programs and resources for different types of students and the different things that they need. Uh, So we we had one of those workshops this semester and we're also going to be, oh geez, in a few weeks offering a workshop for faculty Mm -hmm. on note-taking and how to, what the research says on note-taking and how to maybe teach your students better note-taking or hey even if you want to be a better note-taker yourself what's the research actually say on that so a big part of what we do at the center is about translating research um, and making it accessible for um, at least our local community being the college that we work at for the faculty and the staff Um, but we're also reaching out towards local teachers The, the summer we had a book study where we had teachers um local teachers read our book and come and meet with us and we kind of like walked through it and that was really interesting and really fun. Um, We also, so we do a lot of translational stuff. We also obviously feel really strongly about involving students in our research. Um, And we couldn't do half of the things we do if we didn't have a small army of really dedicated and really amazing students who help us out. And so it sounds like this is a really great asset for St. Bonaventure University, the faculty, the students, but also the Olean New York community. I hope so. That's certainly our goal. Um, I feel like we've gotten a lot of attention recently at our university for doing it because I know that it's kind of a common problem across universities. It's definitely not specific to my university, but there's a lack of professional development for faculty members in terms of teaching. And it's something that I, I actually talk a lot about with my students because they expressed frustration with some faculty members who are maybe teaching in less than optimal ways. And I remind them and say, well, you know, the qualification for getting this job is not that you know anything about teaching or learning. It's that you know how to do research in your very specific field and subdomain. Now, at a university like mine, um, tenure and promotion is based on your teaching ability. We're a teaching institution. That's primarily what we do. 
Um, so I felt really strongly that if we are going to judge people's performance on this thing, that we should offer some resources on how to improve it. Yeah, because how, how big is St. Bonaventure? Um, I'd say we have about 1,500 students right now. Undergraduates. Yes, primarily undergraduate. Um, the, that number is probably different if we included graduate, but primarily undergraduate. In Olean, New York, which I know is... It's a, a smaller town. Right? We're like an hour and a half south of Buffalo. Um, we're yeah, a, a fairly small town. West, Western New York. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So in addition to the learning scientist work that you've been doing, which I know is a lot of work, your research, all of your teaching, the center, you also recently co-wrote a book called Five Teaching and Learning Myths Debunked. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and maybe tell the readers where they can find your book in case they're interested? Yes. Um, So Five Teaching, Learning, and Myths Debunked, A Guide for Teachers. Um, I co-wrote, again, with my co-director, Dr. Adam Brown. Um, So usually when we talk about this, we like to talk about the fact that we are each the bizarro version of each other, Um, Mm -hmm. that I am a cognitive psychologist in the psychology department, and I do research on primarily human learning and memory, but also a little bit of attention, cognition stuff, cognitive stuff, psychonomic stuff, which is why we're both at this conference. He's a professor in the education department, or actually education school. He's an educational psychologist. So he does, um, and he, he does research actually a lot on developmental psychology and how it applies to educational settings or not. Um, and so he is in one context and I'm in another. Um, and it's something that's sort of strange to anybody outside of academia, but inside <laughs> academia, uh, educational psychologists and cognitive psychologists don't really interact that much which is really weird of course the people doing research on education shouldn't interact with the people doing research on education this makes perfect sense obviously obviously so obviously the people in our teacher training programs don't interact with the people doing research on learning and memory and vice versa right this is not any one fault this has just been some weird historical fluke which I know that's why you were so interested in the learning scientist and wanted to join the team because one one of our biggest things is really communication among people who all have these common interests and yet different, unique, important perspectives, teachers, researchers, and bi-directional communication as opposed to this group tells that group what to do or that group tells this group that they don't know what they're talking about or, or what have you. Right. Which is one of the reasons why... Um, I was so excited when I met Dr. Brown at Bonaventure because we had similar backgrounds, but also similar interests in saying like, hey, we should really like um, build a bridge here and like talk and like we have different perspectives and those could make us stronger if we work together. Um, So when we started talking about founding the center, we also started talking about the need to build that communication and the need to um, translate research from cognitive psychology to education, specifically for teacher educators, but also for teachers, but we wanted to make it accessible um, because he's very familiar because he's in the School of Education um, and he helps with teacher training. And I know there's just extensive right qualifications, especially because we're in New York State, which has some of the higher standards um, in terms of, uh, I'm always deeply impressed with all of our education students. The amount of requirements they have to go through to get a degree is just like above and beyond clearly what most of my psychology students have to go through. Um, So he's very aware with what the standards are and how they're being taught. Um, And he saw a really clear need for some translational work to be done. Um, And and he also saw the kind of realistic need that like, it's not enough just to say, well, I published a paper, right? Because that's a lot of work. Um, I'm busy all the time. I barely have time to keep up with the research in our field. And like, that's how I was trained. I cannot imagine what that is like for somebody who's not trained in the field. 
and doesn't have access to these publications. There are times when I have to ask the library to please give me access to my own paper. That's a separate issue for a separate podcast. Right, right. Access is an issue. Um, So one of our goals for the book is we wanted it to be really short and really accessible. We wanted to be able to talk about, um, at least we wanted it to be manageable. So we said, okay, what are the kind of the five big things we should um, get across? And so we came up with this idea of debunking five common myths. Um, that we had kind of seen sort of in general in education, but that we'd also sort of seen a little bit more up close in like teacher education programs. Um, So we talked about first multitasking um, and the idea that we can do multiple things at once, which of course is not true. Um, You can, but not well. um, And that you're like blind to a lot of errors that you make, right? And that's where this research on cell phones, the center and the book all kind of came from the same source. Um, we also talked about examples was our second myth, right? Um, and that also, that came a little bit more from my end because I had done some more research on what my master's thesis was on, was on things related to this. Um, and I'd had lots of conversations with teachers and with professors that had said, oh, I use this really cool example in class. Why don't they remember, right? I went through all this work, right? To come up with this really cool thing to get them really interested and engaged and they don't remember anything. Right. So there's this uh, kind of myth around how you should use examples. You certainly should use examples, but two are better than one. That was one of my first guest posts for you guys. Um, we also talk about testing, of course. It's you can't write a book with me and not talk about retrieval practice of testing. So that was a big component of it. We also talked about selective attention, which is the myth there was just that you kind of you either have it or you don't, right? Some people are good at focusing and maybe I'm not one of those people which isn't true. And it's one of the more fascinating things that I learned in starting writing this book and, and starting down this road of research. Um, that actually throughout a lot of cognitive psychology, it's, there's so few like cognitive abilities that you can improve with training. And the fact that selective attention and focus is one of them is something that I don't think gets enough like time. Cause yeah. it's, it's kind of amazing, right? That you can improve uh, your ability to focus. Now it takes practice and it takes time. There is no silver bullet, just like with anything else. Um, but it's certainly not true that, well, you know, he's really good at doing those types of things, but I'm not. So I, I should just give up. Right. Yeah. yeah. I know that's one big thing with my students when I'm teaching a learning class right now, upper level. So mostly juniors and seniors at Rhode Island College and anything where we talk about like, look, it's not you can do this and you can't do it. Right. There are things that you can do to try to improve the practice. Um, you know, specifically with retrieval practice and sort of these mindsets and improving um, your ability to make connections. And it's really empowering for them to realize like, hey, it's not that I can't do this. I just need more practice and difficulty is good. Right. And that's one of the things that I try to tell my students all the time. Just like you said, it can be empowering that I I don't want you to think that, oh, I'm bad at this thing and be bad forever. No, that you can learn about the different abilities that you have. Certainly we all have different backgrounds and abilities and skill set. But that's just like a starting point, and there are ways that we can improve that. And if we are more aware of those things, we can all make greater strides towards that. Um, the last myth that we talk about is kind of the big one, uh, mm-hmm. which is learning styles. Uh, and that was it, it, actually I've been somewhat surprised when we've talked with teachers and, and after people have read the book. Um, I, I guess I guess I've had past experiences that have just sort of like scared me <laughs> that if I even like say the words learning styles that like they're going to need a whole bunch of pushback but most of the people that we've talked to since writing the book have actually been fairly supportive um and really excited to see it laid out right like 
um, learning styles is a myth, but we also obviously talk a lot about dual coding in that chapter um, because we thought it was, well, one, because dual coding, there's a lot of evidence supporting it, but we also thought it was very unproductive to say, like, this is bad. What we didn't want to do was have a book that just talked about all the wrong things that people are doing because that seems mm-hmm. a little senseless. Um, and so we made sure that every time we brought up something we said, hey, this is not really how it works, we said this is actually how it works, um, and we provided people with tools and examples to see how to apply it. Uh, so again, we set up the book to make it make it something that you can just pick up and immediately get use out of. We didn't want this to be some um, some sort of like deep dive into the research, although we provide references. So if um, someone had the time or the inclination, they could certainly look it up. We, we don't we don't want you to just take our word for it, right? We actually have some evidence to back this up. But on the other hand, just being respectful and mindful of the fact that our primary audience is not researchers, right? They're teachers, they're teacher educators, they're people who just, who honestly want to know, like, okay, now what? And I always get frustrated when I see, um, or when I come in contact with people who kind of feed into this divide that happens between people who do research and people who teach. And I see researchers who, who will talk about like, oh, well, obviously the research is there. Of course you should just apply it without doing the hard work then of talking about how to apply it. Because it is hard work to take research and then translate it into a classroom setting. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we, we came up at least with some examples. And that's part of why it was really great to, to have our focus group and, and uh, book discussion over the summer with teachers and talk about how what what were some more examples of how they would translate this and use this in their own classrooms and get more feedback on that. Yeah, it takes a village, right? So we know it takes years and years and years to become an expert researcher and to learn the parameters and, and the ways you can translate and all of those things. And it takes years and years and years and tons and tons of requirements and hoops to jump through to become a teacher Uh, you know, an expert teacher. And so, of course, there's a bit of a divide. There's not a lot of people who go through the decades of training and then drop it and say, now I'm going to go through the decades of training on the other side. So really, it, it it takes a village. One of the things if I'm remembering correctly, that I really liked when I read your book, which I read it um, just before it came out, uh, was the organization, right? So there's different sections, if I'm remembering correctly, yes. right, within each chapter so yes. that a teacher can pick it up and say, I'm interested in this, the specific tips or I'm interested in getting the overview. Yeah, we set it up so that um, each chapter we had um, sort of an overview section where we say, like, hey, here are the main myths we're going to talk about. We talk about the research behind um, the myths, right? And, and, and I guess the research debunking the myths. A little bit difficult to say the research behind this. Um, and then a section on like the, the tools, like, okay, now what? Like, how do I, what do I do with this? And we broke those down by um, by developmental levels. And of course, again, I wrote this with an educational psychologist who has a background in development, so he felt strongly we had to break up um, early elementary with late elementary, middle school, high school. And high school and college are really developmentally very similar, so most of the things were we ended up combining them. It was actually an interesting note that we got back from our editor. Um, they were worried that we had too few examples for what to do in college. Because um, we were worried when we were writing the book that we're writing from the perspective of two professors who teach college, right? And so we were, we, we went, I guess, too much the other way and had too many examples from um, K through 12 and not as many examples for mm-hmm. college. Um, but developmentally, they're pretty similar. Yeah, that's great. So, so what's next for you? Um, oh man, <laughs> uh, while well, still continuing on with learning scientists and the center, 
where uh, more or less working on like streamlining things at the center, working out the kinks, right? Uh, we would like to we would like to produce more resources, uh, more, more things like handouts, and, and we, we would like to be, at least for our university, a clearinghouse, right? It's a best practices to be able to uh, be a go-to place if someone has a question on like, hey, I heard about this thing, like, is this, should, is this worth my time? Should I really like use this in my class? Or if it is, like, how do I do that? Are there some best practices here? Um, I've also been really active in uh, a group we have on campus uh, like games and education, um, which is just, which is always, at least, at the very least, it's fun, right? Um, I, I really appreciate the community we have at my campus where there's um, a lot of like-minded professors and uh, fellow academics who just want to want to explore and try new things, and so we have a group that's interested in looking at and exploring gaming and education, and so I've, I've offered to um, partner up with them and assist them in doing research in the future. So that's one of the things. Um, yeah, and like I said, we have some research going on next semester on mindfulness. Uh, and yeah, we'll see you in there. Great. Well, if, if our listeners want to learn more, we'll link up to the website to Calm, the center. We can put a link up for your book. And also, of course, you have stuff on the Learning Scientist as our newest member. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is funded by the Chartered College of Teaching and listeners like you. To support our work and to gain access to exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.